May I speak now in the name of the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus said in that gospel reading we've just heard, Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother. How on earth do we make sense of such sayings of Jesus? Isn't he supposed to be the Prince of Peace, the one who brings reconciliation? Aren't we called to love not only those who are close to us, but even our enemies? At a time when we are witnessing the ugly rise of extremism and increased divisions in our society, how can such a proclamation possibly be good news? Uh, Some of you will know that before I trained for ordination, I worked for a year with the Church Mission Society serving a school and local church context in Peshawar in northwest Pakistan. And amongst the many people that I met over the course of that year, I had the immense privilege of getting to know Mr. Nazami, a 92-year-old man, I kid you not, who still worked serving drinks to school children during their break and lunchtime. Mr. Nazami was a gentle and much-loved man. With his long white beard, he resembled the classic representation of Father Christmas, albeit one dressed in the traditional Pakistani shawar kameez rather than a red furry suit. One afternoon, I had the opportunity to sit down with Mr. Nazami over a cup of tea, well, several cups of tea, as he told me his life story. You can imagine, for a 92-year-old, that took quite some time. So here's just a very potted version. Mr. Nazami was born into a prominent Muslim family. But when he was at college, he heard and read about Jesus in the New Testament. And having uh, listened to what he was reading and the conversations he was having with other Christians, he decided at that point that he wanted to become a follower of Christ. From there, his troubles began. His family disowned him when they found out, claiming that he had brought disgrace upon them. And on two separate occasions, his own uncles tried to kill him. With tears in his eyes, he expounded on one of these attempts on his life. Sometime after his expulsion from the family, his much-loved sister had contacted him out of the blue, telling him that she wanted to meet up with him that she was fed up with how the rest of his family had been treating him, that she still loved him. Well, heartened by this conversation, he agreed to meet with her. But a couple of days before they were due to meet, she called him again to tell him that it had all been a trap, that when they were to meet, an uncle would be there to kill him. In tears, she told him to disappear, to never contact her again for his own safety. Since that day, Mr. Nazami, as he told me his story, had not spoken to or seen his sister or any other family member. His decision to follow Jesus Christ had literally turned his family against him. 
The very members of his own household had become his enemies. In a tragically real way, Mr. Nazami's story demonstrated the truth of Jesus' warning in our Gospel reading. But Mr. Nazami's faith also touched the lives of countless people who, through him, discovered the love of God in Christ. His story was one of good news through unimaginable pain. And as he told me, he had no regrets about his decision to follow Jesus. You see, Jesus did not teach that we should turn our backs on our families in the manner often required by many cults. But he did warn us that the decision to follow him, to give ourselves to his kingdom agenda, may well mean that we have to embrace a path that alienates us from those we most love. It's a tough teaching about the real cost of real faith. As one writer put it, as long as some people refuse to accept the lordship of God, to follow the prince of peace will always be a way of conflict. Against uh, such a backdrop, such a story, even just of one man, and there are countless others like it, I find it intriguing that so many critics of Christianity in the West have described Christian faith as simply a crutch for the weak. When people can get away with such inaccurate descriptions, it must beg the question as to whether we, the church, have domesticated Christian faith made it into a private pursuit that only exists to scratch the back of the believer? Have we somehow simplified it and made it less to what it should be? For if we have, it could be not further, sorry, it could not be further from the picture of faith that we find in the Hebrew Scriptures in the New Testament. In our other reading this morning, the writer to the Hebrews set out on a lengthy revision exercise to remind his readers of what faith meant for their forefathers. In the context of a call to persevere as followers of Jesus, being ready to embrace opposition, oppression, and even death, the writer gives us a a chapter all about faith, which begins with the words, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The chapter goes on to remind us of the pursuits of many of the Old Testament heroes of the faith. It tells of Abel's faithful sacrifice, Noah's obedience in the face of ridicule, Abraham's courage in setting out for a land without knowing where he was going, and his trust in God's promise for descendants. It tells of the faith of Moses' mother and of Moses' own faith in identifying with the persecuted Hebrew people when he could have enjoyed the riches of the Pharaoh's court. In the verses we heard read this morning, we're reminded of the mind-boggling strides of faith made by the Hebrew people as they crossed the Red Sea. Just imagine what it would have been like at one side of the Red Sea, being ready to cross as if on dry land. We're told of the faith-filled risk taken by Rahab as she defied her own people because she had discerned where truth and justice really lay. We're reminded of how Joshua and Gideon and Samson and Jephthah all won famous victories against the odds 
because of their faith in Yahweh, and of how David faithfully followed God's call to be king of Israel, enduring the wrath of King Saul and the very real possibility of being killed as a consequence. We're reminded too of how Samuel and the prophets put their faith in God and delivered their divine messages to the people, often at great personal cost in the face of immense danger. And then in verse 35, the reader reaches a crescendo, describing numerous examples of faith now in generic rather than specific terms. Indeed, if you have the opportunity to go home and just read this whole chapter out loud, do it in a room by yourself, you will find, I think, uh, rather than reading in a cathedral, which is different, but you will find if you're just reading it out loud, you cannot help but speed up as you get to verse 35. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. When we're faced with such a vivid narrative of faith. How can we describe it as a crutch for the weak? Faith in the biblical tradition is proactive, risky, costly, even sacrificial. It's not simply about believing the right things for our own lives. Faith is evidenced by how we shape our whole lives. In fact, it demands nothing less All that we are, all that we do, all that we say must be fashioned around the one in whom we've put our faith, trusting that their way is the best way. And having reminded the readers of these numerous heroes of faith, the writer then directs us to who the object of our faith should be. Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the something better that the Old Testament heroes of faith never had the privilege of receiving. But friends, we do enjoy that privilege And so how much more should our lives be evidence of the faith that we profess? We are not called to cause division, to retreat into a holy huddle and separate ourselves from so-called non-Christians. But we are called to live a different story as citizens of a kingdom that is marked by truth, justice, and love. And as we do, As we work with God to transform the world with the love of God, we will find ourselves sometimes estranged from a society that has rejected those values, and sometimes estranged even from our own sisters and brothers in the church. But this is good news, because it is the gospel, the arriving kingdom of God, with the people of God working for its arrival, and love wins, even in the face 
of opposition and persecution. And so I wonder, what might all of this mean for us today? What does faith require of us, living in the midst of a climate emergency that threatens the future of the planet entrusted to us and which has the greatest negative impact on the most vulnerable in the world? What does faith require of us as we listen to and respond to LGBTQ people and others who have experienced rejection and marginalization from the church that bears Christ's name? What does faith require of us as we confront the rise of extremism and prejudice and seek to heal divisions in our society? What does faith require of us as we recognize that over 90% of the people living in our community, on our street, in our work and our social spaces, do not yet know that they are loved and treasured by the God who created them? What does faith require of us? And if we were really to embrace what faith requires of us in these and other challenges of 21st century living, will we not risk being misunderstood or misquoted or even villainized? Far from being a crutch on which we lean as we stand still in our lives of comfort, faith shakes the ground from under our feet and propels us into risky and costly places. Which is why, and here I finish, writing to a people who had embraced once the cost of faith but were now at risk of becoming complacent, the author of Hebrews not only recalls the familiar people and stories of faith, but also adopts them. Adopts them as a spur, an encouragement, a propelling force for faithful living. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the faith that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is our supreme example of someone who embraced the cost of faith. And our call, our race, to use the writer's illustration, is one of single-minded, focused commitment to him and to his ways, to the something better whom we are privileged to know and find our identity in. And you know, whenever I think of that great cloud of witnesses spurring me on, by their examples of faith. I'm pretty sure that I can spot the white flowing beard of Mr. Nazami. Shall we pray? Loving God, thank you for the joy of knowing Christ and for the privilege of being caught up in his work of transformation. Stir us, Lord, by that faith 
that we may live and work to his praise and to his glory. Amen.